Section twenty five of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter thirteen of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part one, by Ida L. Pfeiffer. July eighth. Today we quitted our cold, hard couch at six o'clock in the morning and travelled agreeably for two hours through this romantic valley which appeared almost at every step in a new aspect of increased beauty. Above the village a foaming stream bursts from the mighty rocks in a beautiful waterfall, irrigates the valley, and then vanishes imperceptibly among the windings of the ravine. Brooks similar to this one, but smaller, leapt from the mountains round about. On the rocky peaks we seem to behold ruined castles and towers, but discover with astonishment, as we approach nearer, that what we suppose to be ruins are delusive pictures, formed by the wonderful masses of rock, grouped one above the other in the most fantastic forms. In the depths on the one side, grottoes upon grottoes are seen, some with their entrances half concealed, others with gigantic portals, above which the wild rocks tower high. On the other, a rich soil is spread in the form of terraces on the rocky cliffs, forming a lovely picture of refreshing vegetation. Had I been a painter, it would have been difficult to tear me away from the contemplation of these regions. Below the greater waterfall a narrow stone bridge, without balustrades or railings, leads across a deep ravine, through which the stream rushes foaming to the opposite shore. After having once crossed, we enter upon a more inhabited tract of country, and travel on between rows of houses and gardens. But many of the houses stood empty, the inhabitants having fled into the fields, and there erected huts of branches of trees to escape the plague. The Maronites, the real inhabitants of these mountains, are strong people, gifted with a determined will. They cannot easily be brought under a foreign yoke, but are ready to defend their liberty to the death among the natural strongholds of their rocky passes. Their religion resembles that of the Christians, and their priests are permitted to marry. The women do not wear veils, but I saw few such handsome countenances among them as I have frequently observed in the Tyrol. In the first mountain range of Lebanon, in the direction of Calosira, many Druzes are found, besides a few tribes of Mutualis. The former incline to the Christian faith, while the latter are generally termed calf-worshippers. They practice their religion so secretly that nothing certain is known concerning it. The general supposition is, however, that they worship their deity under the form of a calf. Our way led onwards for about six miles from Bishare through the beautiful valleys of the Lebanon. Then the smiling nature changed, and we were again wandering through sterile regions. The heat, too, became very oppressive, but everything would have been borne cheerfully had there not been an invalid among us. Herr Sattler had felt rather unwell on the previous day, Today he grew so much worse that he could not keep his seat in his saddle, and fell to the ground half insensible. Luckily we found a cistern not far off, and near it some trees, beneath which we made a bed of cloaks for our sick friend. A little water mixed with a few drops of strong vinegar restored him to consciousness. After the lapse of an hour the patient was indeed able to resume his journey, but lassitude, headache, and feverish shivering still remained and we had a ride of many hours before us ere we could reach our resting-place for the night. 
From every hill we climbed the ocean could be seen at so short a distance that we thought an hour's journeying must bring us there. But each time another mountain thrust itself between, which it was necessary to climb. So it went on for many hours, till at length we reached a small valley with a lofty, isolated mass of rock in the midst, crowned by a ruined castle. The approach to this stronghold was by a flight of stairs cut in the rock. From this point our journey lay at least over a better road, between meadows and fruit trees, to the little town which we reached at nightfall. We had a long and weary search before we could obtain for our sick comrade even a room, destitute of every appearance of comfort. Poor Herr Sattler, more dead than alive, was compelled, after a ride of thirteen hours, to take up his lodging on the hard ground. The room was perfectly bare, the windows were broken, and the door would not lock. We were fain to search for a few boards, with which we closed up the windows, that the sick man might at least be sheltered from the current of air. I then prepared him a dish of rice with vinegar. This was the only refreshment we were able to procure. The rest of us lay down in the yard, but the anxiety we felt concerning our sick friend prevented us from sleeping much. He exhibited every symptom of the plague. In this short time his countenance was quite changed. Violent headaches and exhaustion prevented him from moving, and the burning heat added the pangs of thirst to his other hills. As we had been travelling for the last day and a half through regions where the pestilence prevailed, it appeared but too probable that Herr Sattler had been attacked by it. Luckily the patient himself had not any idea of the kind, and we took especial care that he should not read our anxiety in our countenances. July ninth, Heaven be praised. Herr Sattler was better to-day, though too weak to continue his journey. As we had thus some time on our hands, the French gentleman and I resolved to embark in a boat to witness the operations of fishing for sponges, by which a number of the poorer inhabitants of the Syrian coast gained their livelihood. A fisherman rowed us about half a mile out to sea, till he came to a place where he hoped to find something. Here he immersed a plummet in the sea to sound its depth, and on finding that something was to be gained here, he dived downwards armed with a knife to cut the sponges he expected to find from the rocks, and after remaining below the surface for two or three minutes, reappeared with his booty. When first loosened from the rocks, these sponges are usually full of shells and small stones, which give them a very strong and disagreeable smell. They require to be thoroughly cleansed from dirt and well washed with sea-water before being put into fresh. After our little water-party, we sallied forth to see the town, which is very prettily situated among plantations of mulberry-trees in the vicinity of the sea-coast. The women here are not only unveiled, but frequently wear their necks bare. We saw some of them working in their gardens and washing linen. They were half undressed. We visited the bazaar, intending to purchase a few eggs and cucumbers for our dinner, and some oranges for our convalescent friend. But we could not obtain any, and moderate as our wishes were, it was out of our power to gratify them. By the afternoon Herr Sattler had so far regained his strength that he could venture to undertake a short journey of ten miles to the little town of Jebel. This stage was a less difficult for our worthy invalid from the fact that the road lay pleasantly across a fruitful plain skirting the sea, while a cool sea-breeze took away the oppressiveness of the heat. The majestic Lebanon bounded the distant view on the left, and several convents on the foremost chain of mountains looked down upon the broad vale. 
We seemed to have but just mounted our horses, when we already descried the castle of the town to which we were bound rising above its walls, and soon after halted at a large khan in its immediate neighborhood. There were rooms here in plenty, but all were empty, and the unglazed windows could not even be closed by shutters. Houses of entertainment of this description barely shield the traveller from the weather. We took possession of a large entrance hall for our night's quarters, and made ourselves as comfortable as we could. Count Berchthold and I walked into the town of Jabel, Biblis. This place is, as I have already mentioned, surrounded by a wall. It also contains a small bazaar, but we did not find much to buy. The majority of dwellings are built in gardens of mulberry trees. The castle lies rather high, and is still in the condition to which it was reduced after the siege by the English in 1840. The side fronting the ocean has sustained most damage. This castle is now uninhabited, but some of the lower rooms are converted into stables. Not far off we found some fragments of ancient pillars. An amphitheatre is said to have once stood here. July 10th. Today Herr Sattler had quite recovered his health, so that we could again commence our journey, according to custom, early in the morning. Our road lay continually by the seashore. The views were always picturesque and beautiful, as on the way from Betram to Jabil, but today we had the additional luxury of frequently coming upon brooks, which flowed from the neighboring Lebanon, and of passing springs bursting forth near the seashore, one indeed so close to the sea that the waves continually dashed over it. After riding forward for four hours, we reached the so called Dog's River, the greatest and deepest on the whole journey. This stream also has its origin in the heights of the Lebanon, and after a short course falls into the neighboring sea. At the entrance of the valley where the Dog's River flowed lay a simple khan. Here we made halt to rest for an hour. Generally we got nothing to eat during the day, as we seldom or never passed a village. Even when we came upon a house, there was rarely anything to be had but coffee. We were therefore the more astonished to find here fresh figs. Cucumbers, buttermilk, and wine, things which in Syria make a feast for the gods. We reveled in this unwonted profusion, and afterwards rode into the valley, which smiled upon us in verdant luxuriousness. This vale cannot be more than five or six hundred feet in breadth. On either side, high walls rise towering up, and on the left we see the ruins of an aqueduct quite overgrown with ivy. This aqueduct is seven or eight hundred paces in length. And extends as far as the spot where the Dog's River rushes over rocks and stones, forming not a lofty, but yet a fine waterfall. Just below this fall, a bridge of Roman architecture, supported boldly on rocky buttresses, unites the two shores. The road to this bridge is by a broad flight of stone stairs, upon which our good Syrian horses carried us in perfect safety, both upwards and downwards. It was a fearful, dizzy road. The river derives its name from a stone lying near it, which is said to resemble a dog in form. Stones and pieces of rock, against which the stream rushed foaming, we saw in plenty, but none in which we could discover any resemblance to a dog. Perhaps the contour has been destroyed by the action of wind and weather. Scarcely had we crossed this dangerous bridge when the road wound sharply round a rock in the small but blooming valley, and we journeyed towards the heights up almost perpendicular rocks. And passed abysses that overhung the sea. The rocky mountains we were now climbing juts far out into the sea and forms a pass towards the territory of Beirut, 
which a handful of men might easily hold against an army. Such a pass may that of Thermopylae have been, and had these mountaineers but a Leonidas, they would certainly not be far behind the ancient Spartans. A Latin inscription on a massive stone slab, and higher up four niches, two of which contain statues, while the others display a similar inscription, seem to indicate that the Romans had already known and appreciated the importance of this pass. Unfortunately, both statues and writing were so much injured by the all-destroying hand of time that only a man learned in these matters could have deciphered their meaning. In our party there was no one equal to such a task. We rode on for another half-hour, after which the path led downwards into the territory of Beirut, and we rode quietly and comfortably by the seaside towards this city. Mulberry trees and vineyards bloomed around us, country houses and villages lay half-hidden between, and convents crowned the lower peaks of the Lebanon, which on this side displays only naked rocks, the majority of a bluish-gray color. At a little distance from Beirut we came upon a second giant bridge, similar to that over the Dog's River. Broad staircases, on which four or five horsemen could conveniently ride abreast, led upwards and downwards. The steps are so steep, and lie so far apart, that it seems almost incredible that the poor horses should be able to ascend and descend upon them. We looked down from a dizzy height, not upon a river, but upon a dry river-bed. At five o'clock in the evening we arrived safely at Beirut, and thus ended our excursion to the lovely and incomparable city of the East, to the world-renowned ruin, and to the venerable grove of cedars. Our tour had occupied ten days. The distance was about 180 miles, namely, from Beirut to Damascus about 60, from Damascus to Baalbek 40, and from Baalbek across the Lebanon to Beirut about 80 miles. Of four-footed beasts, amphibious creatures, birds or insects, we had seen nothing. Count Berchtold caught a chameleon, which unfortunately effected its escape from its prison a few days afterward. At night we frequently heard the howling of jackals, but never experienced any annoyance from them. We had not to complain of the attacks of insects, but suffered much from the dreadful heat, besides being frequently obliged to endure hunger and thirst. The thermometer one day rose to forty degrees. End of section 25